coming down, remember, on the white horse, and he's coming down to wage that final battle against the nations. And we ride with him, we don't fight with him, but we ride with him and we come back with him uh, to earth. That is theologically referred to as the second coming of Christ, all right? Now, uh, hopefully that, that terminology clears that up a little bit. The rapture, he doesn't actually come to earth. The first coming is the incarnation. And then the second coming is right at the end of the tribulation period when we'll come back with him. And then he will rule and reign on the planet for a thousand years. And we refer to that as the millennial kingdom. Number two, this was a really great question. Uh, one of those questions where I'm going to give an answer, but some of you are going to look at it and go, eh, I don't know about that answer, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. If there's life on other planets at the time of the rapture, will people on other planets experience a time of tribulation? It's a good question, right? Uh, Psalm 19.1 says that the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Now, everything that God has made, be it us, be it wildlife or angels or stars or planets, this is very important for you to remember, especially if you're here and you're a new believer. All of those things have been created. They have been put together in order that they might bring glory to God. And when uh, we see uh, the views of the Milky Way or we peer at Saturn through a telescope, uh, we're amazed at the wonders of God, at least I am. David wrote in Psalm 8 and verse 3, I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've ordained. And when we see the vast number of stars and then we read what scientists have discovered, uh, that they've discovered literally thousands upon thousands of galaxies, I don't know about you, but it just literally blows my mind. I heard this week, and I don't remember if it was a planet or a star, I think it was a star, that they said was like 45 million light years away. And I just, I can't even wrap my arms around that, can you? And that is the, the universe that we know that God has created. In fact, Psalm 147 verse 4, to further blow your mind, says he counts the number of the stars and he calls them all by name. Isn't that amazing? I only know the names of a few stars. My favorite one's the North Star. I just know that one. But imagine going out at night on a clear night and looking up into the skies and seeing, especially I'm going to be in Kenya in a few weeks, and, and when we're down in the valley in the bush in Kenya, you look up into the sky and you talk about an amazing show that is put on. Next time you see that, know that God created each one of those stars that you see, and he knows them by name. That's an amazing thing. And so we have to assume that, the, that space and the planets and the stars, those were all created for God's glory. And we know that there are stars and there are planets outside of our solar system that exist. And those two obviously were created for the glory of God. And it, it seems like the longer we're here on this planet, we hear about uh, missions to places where we've only dreamt of going uh, in the future. And there are many references, by the way, in the Bible, and I won't take the time to go through them, obviously, all this morning, but there are many references in the Bible to earth, to planet earth. And so we can safely conclude that, that God gave this book, the Bible, that he gave it to us as human beings, to people that live on this planet. Now, I know what the next question is. Does that mean that God couldn't have created other universes, other planets with life on them? Uh, if, I don't know. 
I just don't know that. As to whether there's life on other planets, there's some people that I've seen that look like they might have come from one of those, but I don't know for sure. We simply don't know, and that's an honest answer. I know some of you have read and studied about UFOs. I don't know about that stuff, all right? I've never had uh, that experience. But I, I will say this, that this word we know is for planet Earth, for human beings that live on this planet. It'll blow your mind to think about, could God have created other uh, life forms on other planets, and could he have given them a book like this? I, I don't know, and don't let that go too far, okay? Because we just uh, don't know that. And so we can safely assume then that since God's word was given to us and to the people on this planet, that as far as the tribulation period goes, we don't have any way of assuming that if there are people on other planets that they will go through a tribulation time. Uh, God's plan for them and for their lives and for their eternal state obviously would be based on whatever he decides. Because at the end of the day, remember this, and this is important to remember, he is the sovereign one. He's the sovereign one. I talked to somebody this week who said to me, I believe that there is a higher being. And if you believe that, my friend, if you believe that there is a higher being, and he, and that higher being is sovereign, he is in control, that means that there isn't anything that you've thought of that he hasn't thought of. In fact, there's lots of things that he has, he has thought of that you and I will never think of. And I have to assume that if God has created other people on other planets, that he has a plan for them because he is the sovereign one. Great question, though. That came from one of our kids. A little more profound than some of the rest of them, which brings us to question number three. Will there be pets in heaven? Now, I got this question a number of times, and you have to understand, and I don't want anybody throwing stuff at me, okay? I just have never been a real animal lover. I know some of you are. Some of you, I've been in your homes, and your dog has sniffed my leg and done stuff like that, and and I'm okay with that. that. You like your pets, you like your dogs and your cats and your gerbils and whatever else it is that you have. I did mention to you last week, I don't know about dogs, but I'm pretty confident that, well, I'll just leave that there. <laughs> this was a question, though, that was asked at Harvest when Randy Alcorn uh, was there, will there be pets in heaven? And I thought he did a good job answering this, so we'll show this video to you. People get very attached to their pets. And what, is there a possibility your pet could be in heaven? Well, you know, I've got two chapters uh, in the, the Big Heaven book, uh, one on uh, animals, and it relates to Romans 8, Isaiah 60, a passage that refers to a number of animals uh, and definitely refers to the new earth because it's cited twice, Isaiah 60 in Revelation 21 and 22, an application of the new earth that it's part of God's whole creation. So because the whole creation groans with a longing for deliverance, and it's not just human beings, it emphasizes the whole creation is currently suffering. Well, who else besides human beings suffers? Animals. And, and the whole creation is looking forward to a deliverance. It sounds like some beings besides humans who are now suffering will experience the relief of that suffering and will be part of life on a new earth. And again, that conforms to uh, Isaiah 60 uh, and Ezekiel 47 and a few other Old Testament passages as well. Then the question becomes, would, could some of those animals uh, that God restores as part of a new creation, could they be uh, 
Pat, well, my question would be, why not? If there's going to be some animals, why not animals that God entrusted to the stewardship and care of his people? And by the way, if you want to read a fascinating passage on this sometime, I reread it the other day. Genesis chapter 9, where God makes his covenant with Noah, he repeatedly, I believe it's six or seven times, says, I make this covenant with you and with all the living creatures that walk the ground and swim in the seas. You go, why does he repeatedly keep saying that he's making a covenant with animals? Well, because he views animals as the second most important entities on this planet. Human beings are first, animals are second. And for whatever reason, he actually has a plan for them. And I think that's another passage that would indicate God has a future purpose for animals. Yeah. You know, the Bible says that we'll rule over certain things in the new earth, and probably because I've mocked cats so many times, I'll rule over a lot of cats or yeah, something. If, if, if there were a purgatory, it might be you with the cat. You know, I'm not sure, but no. Oh, I'm not ruling over any cats. That's not going to happen, I'm telling you. It's fascinating to study that. I've actually done some more uh, reading on that as far as animals. It's fascinating even to think about uh, certainly in, in the millennial kingdom and in the new heaven and the new earth of whether or not we will actually be carnivores, whether or not we'll actually eat meat because of animals at that point. And maybe we'll be, uh, I hate to say it, but maybe we will just eat plants and vegetables. I mean... Uh, I decided last night I wasn't hungry when my wife uh, was making dinner, and so she left to go run some errands, and she came back, and she said, did you want me to get you something for dinner? And I said, no, you'll be very proud of me. Tonight I had fruit for dinner. That's all I had. That deserves a round of applause right there. That, it really does. For my wife not to be there and for me to cut myself a plate that had nothing but fruit on it, that is a big, big, big moment. In our, in our household, and you don't appreciate it, I can tell, but it, but it really is. Uh, question number four was, are we being prepared for the work we'll do in heaven? Some of this actually came up, by the way, not just uh, in our study of eschatology, but some of it came up uh, uh, in our study at Men's Fraternity. We're, we're in a study right now of work, what it means to work and what, what your job means uh, to God. And so uh, I did a little bit of studying. If you have your Bible I'm just going to read this passage to you, uh, Ephesians uh, chapter uh, 2, Ephesians chapter 2 and verses uh, 4 to 10. I don't think there's anything specifically in Scripture that would uh, cause us to believe that right now that God is, is actually doing something to prepare me, you know, like one friend I have who's convinced he's going to have a, a, uh, a ranch full of Jersey cows in heaven. I don't think there's anything in Scripture that would lead us to believe that right now God's preparing him to be a rancher or some kind of a farmer. Um, what we do know is in Ephesians chapter 2, and those of you that are, that are real students of the Bible, this is a familiar passage to you starting at verse 4. I love this passage of Scripture, probably one of my favorite, uh, certainly in the book of Ephesians. It says, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, pay attention here. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. 
than these very familiar verses to us. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. It's not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Here's the work in verse 10 that God has created for us. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. I would say to you that the sole thing to remember with regards to work, certainly in the millennial kingdom and as well in the new heaven and the new earth, is whatever we will be doing, and I believe, as I said last week, that we're going to be doing a lot more than just uh, riding around on clouds with wings and uh, playing harps. Uh, Heaven's going to be so much more than that. But I believe, back to what the Apostle Paul said to the church at Corinth, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, how are we supposed to do it? We're supposed to do it to the glory of God. Because everything we do is for that express purpose, for His glory, to express His worship. And so I believe that God is preparing us that we will do that for all of eternity. Now, I know the next question is, well, what is that? I want to know. You know, will I have a farm with Jersey cows on it? Uh, I hope not, because I'm not interested in that. But I know whatever it is that you'll do, and I believe that there will be a lot of things that we will do in heaven, everything that we, we do will be for the express purpose of bringing glory to God. So in the answer to that question then, I would simply say this, that God is preparing us. He's molding us. We pray this way quite often for God to mold us and shape us into the people that he wants us to be, that we might better be able to give him honor and glory. And so whatever that is that we'll do for all of eternity, I do believe that God is preparing us for that uh, right now. And I believe the best passage of Scripture is that Ephesians uh, chapter 2 passage. Now another fascinating question Question number five that's come up a number of times. In fact, more times probably than I can count. And, and probably even the people that didn't ask the question have wondered, what will our relationships be like in heaven? What will our relationships be like in heaven? Randy Alcorn did a good job answering this one as well. Let's listen to this. So when we're in heaven, what is, how are we related one to another? Right now you're a father you're a husband, you're a son, you're a grandfather. Uh, will we be married still in heaven? Because the verse that's often cited, Matthew 22, Jesus said the resurrection will neither marry nor are given in marriage. They're like the angels of God in heaven. So are we married in heaven? Are we still husbands, uh, sons, what, daughters, mothers, etc.? How does that all work? This one passage, Jesus defined this related to marriage. There will be no more human marriage exactly as we know it and in that one specific respect we'll be like the angels who aren't given marriage but it's not an overall thing like we'll be like the angels in other respects or most respects but what i think is so significant about this is uh my wife nancy is my best friend she is here today but she likes to be in the back and not be publicly acknowledged so i will not point out where she is but she's in here somewhere and if you find her, she's adorable. Anyway, uh, so I love Nancy, but what, I, what I've had people say to me, oh, well, you know, I got a great marriage here on earth, and, and I, I, it really bothers me that we won't be married in heaven. Well, here's the way I look at it. Nancy and I will be part of the same marriage in heaven because 
the Bible doesn't say there will be no marriage in heaven. It says there'll be one marriage of heaven, yeah. Christ to his bride, the church. Yeah. We are part of the church, so we together will be part of the bride of Christ. So I will be part of a marriage with Nancy to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who's the most important person in both of our lives, and we're second in both of our lives. And what a great thing that will be to be together in marriage to him. And let's be honest, there are other people who unfortunately have gone through very difficult marriage experiences on earth or have not been married on earth at all. And they have something to look forward to, which is a perfect marriage relationship with a bridegroom, Jesus Christ, who will never let us down. That's right. I have a good quote here. That's, amen. Here's a good quote, Randy. Earthly marriage is a shadow, an echo of the true and ultimate marriage. The purpose of marriage is not to replace heaven, but to prepare us for it. You agree with that? I do. Absolutely. You wrote it. Well, <laughs> it's from your book. I thought it sounded familiar, <laughs> but I. <laughs> that'd have been great if you said that's wrong. That is stupid. Who's the idiot who wrote that? <laughs> and uh, another quote. Uh, from your book, God's plan doesn't stop in heaven and the new earth that continues. God doesn't abandon his purposes, he fulfills them. Friendships and relationships begun on earth will continue in heaven richer than ever. I don't know that I can add anything to that. I think that that's going to be one of those mysteries. I know one of the questions, in fact, we'll get down here in just a moment, will, uh, is will we recognize each other in heaven since we're going to have new bodies? I, I don't know all of that. But it's, uh, it's fascinating. There's a lot more in Randy Alcorn's book as he uh, exegetes uh, Scripture. And uh, again, I challenge you to get that book and read further about what our relationships will be like in heaven. Here was a good question I got uh, just last week. And it was one of those questions where it's a very short answer, um, but yet still a, a very fascinating question. If those that God has placed on my heart to pray for do not trust Christ as their Savior and go to heaven... How can I not feel pain or sorrow when I get to heaven and they're not there? It's a very good question. Revelation chapter 21, uh, back to that uh, uh, passage there that we read a few minutes ago. Revelation chapter 21, though, in verse 4. I think I read this to you last week. It says, And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no longer be any death, there will be no longer any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It's done. I'm the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Here's the short answer to the question. The short answer is, No, you will not experience sorrow, pain, tears in heaven for those that you've prayed for that may not have placed their trust in Christ alone as their Savior. And you say, well, how do I know that? The Lord says that he will wipe away every tear from their eye. Now, it's an interesting passage of Scripture, and I don't want to go too far uh, because i still got five more questions. But it's interesting to know why is he wiping the tear away at that particular moment, right? We're already there. The end has already come, and yet he's wiping away that tear. Uh, it would lead me to believe that for a moment there might be a realization that somebody that you love is not there, and yet he wipes the tear from your eye. It's as if um, he erases from our memories eternally those things. 
those things that would create pain, those things that would create sorrow, that would create tears. And um, what, what we do is when we study Scripture, we, we certainly know that Scripture never contradicts itself. And so we can look and say, if God wipes every tear from their eye, and if there's no more sadness, if there's no more sorrow, if there's no more pain, the most logical answer is to say that God must remove that then from our memories eternally. And uh, that's, that's the best answer that, uh, that I can give to that, but a very thought-provoking uh, question. Question number seven is, how will we recognize each other in heaven since we're going to have new bodies? And uh, this is a fascinating, fascinating study. Uh, I looked at this uh, last week as I was studying for uh, our time last week on heaven. And uh, this is fascinating to talk about what our new bodies will be like uh, in heaven. And uh, Randy Alcorn again answers uh, this question for us. All right, let's talk about these new bodies now that God has for us. You're talking about the creation groaning. Every time I drop something on the ground and have to pick it up, I understand that I, I groan. And when I'm down there picking it up, I think to myself, what else can I do while I'm already down here? <laughs> Be a steward of your time. <laughs> Be a good steward of your time. Now, these new bodies that, that we're going to receive from the Lord, they're still us, we're still us, but we're in a glorified state. Uh, heaven is the earthly life of the believer, glorified and perfected. Uh, we don't lose memory of what happened here. Uh, we know more, but so let's talk a little bit about those new bodies. Okay, and I know that you've used, uh, not you've used, the scripture cites Christ himself as the prototype, if you will, that we look at his resurrected body. When Christ who is our life shall appear, we shall appear with him in glory. We shall be like him. So let's talk about this new body. How is it different from us, the body on earth? How is it the same? Great question. Uh, the, the Bible says that Jesus is the first fruits yes. from the grave. And, and as, as you quoted, Greg, we will be like him for we'll see him as he is. So what was his resurrection body like? We want to know what our resurrection bodies will be like? We're told we'll be like him, and he's the first fruits from the grave, and the first fruits represent right. what's to, to come in the case of the other fruit, and that is us. We are going to have bodies like Christ. So here it is in Luke uh, 24, verse 37. They were startled, and they were frightened when they saw Jesus at first because they're thinking they saw a ghost. They're going, this man died, and, and, and says, this is a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled? And why do, do doubts arise in your minds? Verse 39 of Luke 24, Look at my hands and my feet, Jesus says. It is I myself. Yes. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And he says, do you have anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it, and he ate it in their presence. He went to great lengths to demonstrate to us that the resurrection body is a real, actual, physical body, and so that we don't take figurative those passages, or shouldn't rather, when it talks about eating and drinking at tables. And I've had people, I, I had a, a man in my church when I preached a message on this years ago, uh, and talked about the feast and coming from the east and west. He came up to me, old saint of God, loved good doctrine, and he said, you are not actually saying that we'll have real bodies and that we'll eat and drink. And I said, 
That's what the Bible says. And he says, it just sounds so unspiritual. I said, well, why does it sound unspiritual? God is the one, you know, who made the body. And I thought, here is a great saint of God who would die before he would deny the doctrine of the resurrection, but he doesn't actually believe it. Yeah. But I mean, the, the resurrection, look at in Job 19. Job says, I mean, here's the oldest book in the Bible. Job 19, verse 25. Job, in the midst of his suffering that he's undergoing, he cries out. He says, oh, that my words were recorded, that they're written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead, or engraved in rock forever. The person going through suffering feels like, oh, I, I wish my words would last. Well, Job, we're reading your words, and yeah, they've lasted. I know, verse 25, Job 19, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end, he will stand upon the earth. Not just that he'll be out in heaven somewhere. Right. He'll stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. Some people say, say well, you can't find the resurrection in the Old Testament. I go, ah, well, that's what it is. Yet in my flesh, I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another. It will really be me. It'll really be us. We'll have memory. When we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, we're told we're going to give an account for everything we've done in the body. So when people talk about, oh, we won't remember anything in heaven, uh, on the contrary, we'll remember more. Because yeah. I can't remember everything now. But what, if I'm going to give an account for my life, I have to remember it. So when we talk about being able to recognize people and see people, I really believe that if I died today and went to heaven that I would recognize my father. I don't know how that works, but I believe I'd recognize him. It's fascinating to think about what age we'll be in heaven, what our bodies will look like. Uh, many have speculated that, uh, that we'd be about the age uh, of 30, since that's the perfect age. I don't know about that. I remember being 30. It wasn't so perfect to me. 45 is not so great either, but um, very fascinating study uh, to think about that. Uh, question number eight, I believe probably was three or four times as well. And maybe you've had this question before if you've had to deal with it uh, as you have uh, lost a loved one. Somebody asked, what about cremation? How will our bodies be joined with our soul and spirit if our bodies were cremated, if they were, if they were burned up? Uh, great question. Um, the Bible doesn't give us any specific teaching uh, about cremation. There are occurrences, certainly in the Old Testament, in 1 Kings and 2 Kings, about bodies uh, being burned and of human bones uh, being burned, uh, but those aren't examples of cremation. In fact, it's interesting to note that in 2 Kings chapter 23, uh, uh, burning human bones on an altar desecrated the altar. And at the same time, the Old Testament law nowhere commands that a deceased human body not be burned, uh, nor does it attach any curse or any judgment uh, to that as well. Uh, cremation was a practice uh, sometimes in biblical times, but it wasn't a common practice of the Israelites uh, or by New Testament uh, believers. And so in the culture in Bible times, and we read about it in several uh, different instances, Lazarus, for example, where uh, Lazarus was placed into a physical uh, tomb, uh, put into a tomb, and that was the common place, a tomb or a cave in the ground uh, to dispose of a human body. And so uh, the question then would be, is cremation something that a, a Christian can consider? And I would say, again, there is no specific explicit scripture which would uh, forbid that. 
uh, some believers, in fact, and I think this is where this question comes from, uh, tend to, to, to not want to talk about that and, and say that that's, that shouldn't be the way that you dispose uh, of a body uh, because of this whole idea, First Thessalonians 4, that the body is, comes up out of the grave and is joined together uh, in the clouds with their soul, back with their soul or spirit, which has gone on uh, before them. However, a body that's been cremated doesn't make it more difficult for God to reunite. I think that's important to remember. Uh, you, you think about believers that have died uh, 500 years ago. I think probably if you opened up their grave, uh, there would be nothing there. It, was, it, it is all gone back to literally dust. And I think sometimes what we have a tendency to do is we have a tendency to look at things just now. You know, well, what if I died today and the rapture happened next week? You know, my body was embalmed laying there in that casket. Well, surely that would make it a little bit easier for God to join those two back together. But if I'd been cremated a week earlier, maybe he might have a harder time. Let me say it as simply as this. If the whole idea of the rapture, which we believe Scripture clearly teaches, we taught on that the first week, if we accept that by faith, if God's big enough, and I believe he is, to pull that off, him gathering your dust, your ashes from wherever they have been strewn is very, very easy for him to do, right? It really comes down uh, to that. Is God big enough? And God's big enough uh, to do that, just like he's big enough to handle a body which has been embalmed and put in a grave a week before the rapture. Uh, he's certainly capable of doing that uh, with a body that has been burned or has already gone back to dust because it's been in a grave for hundreds of years. But good question. I've had to wrestle that with that uh, even, in my, uh, even in my own family, and it was a good study for me to do uh, at the time. Uh, question number nine, uh, our last question that I'm going to have Randy Alcorn answer, and this is something that I think is fascinating to a lot of people, and that is, do people in heaven see what's happening here on earth? We oftentimes wonder about that. Uh, we hear in a lot of TV programs, don't we? Well, he's looking down on us. He's watching over us. Or he, he told me what to do in this particular situation. So we're very fascinated by that whole idea of people in heaven being able to look down and see what's happening on earth. Randy Alcorn answers this question. So heaven and earth. Right now we coexist at the same time. There's a physical realm. There's a spiritual realm. Right now in heaven, here's a person they, they write. Uh, her name is Becky. My husband passed away a few years ago, and sometimes people will tell my children or me he's looking down at us from heaven. While it's encouraging to think he seems us, this seems contradictory to Scripture. Could you shed light on this? Are people who have gone on before us, believers in the Lord, looking down on us right now or looking down at us at any time? What do people in heaven know about what is happening here on earth? I think a good passage to turn to for that is Revelation chapter 6, where you have the martyrs in heaven. They've died. They've gone home to be with the Lord. They're with Jesus in the present heaven. You look in uh, Revelation chapter 6, verse 9. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. Now, here's what they do. This is what life is like for them in the present heaven. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, 
holy and true until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. Yeah. Well, first of all, clearly they remember their life on earth. And some people say, well, if we could remember anything of our life on earth and heaven, surely we couldn't remember the bad things. How much worse does it get than having been murdered? And they remember that they were murdered. But see, the key to heaven is not ignorance. It's perspective yeah. on their lives. Yeah. So they remember that they, their, their lives on earth. They remember the bad things, actually, that even happened to them. But now they see them through redemptive eyes. And they're also aware that God has not yet brought judgment upon their persecutors. They're not asking, Lord, have you brought judgment? They're saying, when will you bring judgment? So they know that he hasn't yet. How do they know that? Because they're seen, at least to a degree at least, they're aware of what's going on down on earth. And then they're told that they had to wait a little longer. Remember, they're saying, how long, O oh Lord? Wait a little longer. People say, well, is there time in heaven? Very clearly, there is here. And then he says, when the last martyr dies, that's basically when he's going to return. But you look at Luke chapter 15, where Jesus says there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels when a sinner repents. It doesn't say the angels rejoice. It could easily say the angels rejoice. It doesn't say that. Oh, I'm sure they do rejoice, but it's saying there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels when a sinner on earth rejoices. I mean, I mean repents. Yeah. So how do they know that the sinner on earth has repented? They, they have to know about it in order to rejoice. Who are those people in the presence of the angels? I think it's the people of God. It's the, it's the part of the body of Christ that's already gone home. They may be prayed for years for that person. They see that that person repented. There's rejoicing in the very presence of the angels where the people of God are when someone down on earth repents. So people in heaven are aware of what is happening on earth, as you've pointed out. Uh, one verse that's often quoted is, you know, we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Let's run the race with endurance that's set before us. And some would interpret that as saying, well, these are the people that have just gone before us and have sort of set the example, which is true, of course. Right. Hebrews 11 precedes yep. Hebrews 12, and that's the hall of faith of all the great heroes of the Bible. But then again, surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, some wonder is that, you know, I don't know if it's heavenly grandstands, but certainly some form of... Um, viewing or watching from a heavenly perspective, you know, seeing it from that view. I think so. I, I think you could compare, and I do this in the Heaven book, it's like uh, center court at Wimbledon. So you've got, uh, you've got this great tennis match that's going on, and then the people in the grandstands are watching it. Well, some of the people in the grandstands are people who they always kind of focus in on former champions and all of that. It's like people who have gone before who are now watching those who are participating. And I agree that in Hebrews 11, now you can't really prove the cloud of witnesses is, is, is exactly that they're all watching. But when you put it together with these other passages, it makes perfect sense. The focus of heaven is on the unfolding drama of redemption that is happening on planet Earth. Mm. And so Christ is uh, going to return, and does it make sense to think that the people up in heaven are kind of like, oh, they're just oblivious to what's going on down on earth, to which they're going to return with Christ, like it says in, in Thessalonians and other passages, and they're going to return with him, and his plan for the redemption of planet earth will be culminated. Do they care? Are they interested in what's going on down in heaven? Uh, down on earth from the perspective of heaven? I think the answer is yes. I think they're cheering us on. 
And I don't think, by the way, that we, we should ever, there's no biblical basis, in fact, it's contradicted scripturally, that we should ever pray to the saints. We do not pray to the saints. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. First Timothy tells us. But it's maybe a different question of whether the saints are praying for us. Yeah. I mean, they're there they're, because even in, in this passage in Revelation 6, they're saying, how long before you bring judgment? Well, they're, they're almost praying for judgment yeah. to come down on these sinners. But meanwhile, if they're seeing the righteous people of God, are they upholding them in prayer? Well, prayer's talking to God. Will we talk to God less once we go to heaven than we do when we're here? I think we'll talk to him more. Doesn't it just, whenever you listen to an answer, doesn't it create like 10 more questions? <laughs> I think that happens. Question number 10, will everyone have the same relationship with Jesus in heaven? Again, a fascinating thing to think about. And I think that the uh, the thrust of this question is basically, if I could kind of interject, is, is will Jesus have favorites? You know, Jesus have a certain group of people like in our culture right now on a day like today that he's going to invite over for the Super Bowl party. You get to watch it on his TV. But then there's other people that he goes, eh, mm, probably not them. All right. That's the way we look at it, again, from our human standpoint. Does God have favorites? That's how I would paraphrase the question. And the answer to that, I believe, is quite frankly and quite obviously, no. No. In Matthew chapter 20, you remember the mother of the sons of Zebedee that came to Jesus and said, hey, I got a question for you. When, when we get into your kingdom, um, could one of my sons sit on your left and one sit on the right? Would that be kind of possible? I'd love to see that happen. You can read about that in Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 to 28. And, and Jesus kind of dismisses that, that that's not what this is about. Here's why I firmly believe that we won't have different relationships with Jesus in heaven. Because remember, we're going to receive rewards. In fact, that's what this last question here is about. We're going to receive rewards in heaven. But that doesn't mean that we're going to be closer to Jesus because we receive more rewards. It's like a parent who's got three children and one of them gets some reward. We don't go, at least we shouldn't, and say, that's my favorite one. He's the good child. You are the devil child. None of us would say that that's how we should parent. Now, certainly remembering that God is our heavenly father, can't imagine that he would show favoritism. What are we going to do with those rewards? Scripture very clearly says we will throw them at his feet. We will lay them at his feet, realizing that it is only because of him that we did anything that was worthwhile. And so if it's grace alone that saves us, and it is, I have to believe that that goes for our relationship with him in heaven as well. That none of us deserve to be there. And he is the holy sovereign one is very much aware of that. That none of us deserve to be there. It is only by his grace that we're with him because he sent his son Jesus to die. And so I believe that our relationships will, will not be different. That leads to the last question, and that is, what is the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema, and uh, what are those awards given for? And I have two pages of notes here, and we've got about uh, five minutes, and so that's not going to happen. Um, but I think it's important for you to remember, uh, my friend Eddie Short uh, taught this week on, on uh, the Great White Throne Judgment and the Bema. It's important for you to understand that what's talked about in Romans 14 and in 2 Corinthians 5 
where in, in Romans, for example, Paul wrote, for we will all stand before God's judgment seat, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. And 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that we're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one receive what is due him for the things which are done well in the body. Um, it's important to understand that this judgment at this point, it's for believers only. And it doesn't judge whether or not you're going to get into heaven. Uh, this is the time when, uh, when we give an account for those things that we, that we did of value, of worth. And I'd really love to get into this and, and, and go into this in great depth. Uh, there are all kinds of passages, 1 Corinthians 9, 2 Timothy 5, uh, that give us an idea of some of the things that we might be judged on. Matthew 28, we might be judged on how well we fulfilled the Great Commission. We care about lost people. Were we, were we busy telling other people about the good news uh, of the gospel? How victorious were we over sin? Romans 6. How well did we control uh, our tongues? What did we use that tongue for? There are five heavenly crowns, however, that are mentioned uh, in the New Testament. I'll give those to you just real quickly. The imperishable crown, which is mentioned in 1 Corinthians 9, 24, and 25. Uh, This really describes all the crowns which are given. It contrasts our crowns with the temporal and temporary treasures of life. It's also a special crown, which is uh, for faithfulness. Uh, for running the race and exercising self-control in order to serve the Lord and to finish that race well, the imperishable crown. Then number two, the crown of rejoicing, First Thessalonians 2. This is a crown that's given as a reward for witnessing, for ministry to others, uh, which is an incredible thought uh, to have. Number three, there's the crown of righteousness, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 8. Uh, that crown is a reward for faithfulness, uh, Uh, as we use our gifts and opportunities for service uh, to the Lord. And uh, then number four, there's the crown of glory, which is mentioned in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 4. It says, And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. A lot of Bible scholars believe that this is a crown that is specifically reserved for elders, those that shepherded the flock of God here on this planet. So those of you here this morning that are elders... Uh, Be aware of that. It's a reward that's promised to elders for faithfulness and the discharge of their responsibilities of shepherding as under-shepherds the flock of God here on this planet. And then lastly, the fifth crown is the crown of life that's mentioned in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10, and that's the crown that's given for enduring testings or trials, uh, temptation while we're here uh, on this earth. I think it's interesting when we look at the Bema where... um, where we're going to receive rewards. It's interesting to look at Matthew chapter 6 again, uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, where he said, Don't store up for yourself treasures in heaven, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. I think it's interesting that a lot of us spend a lot of our times are a lot of our time storing up treasures and looking for the rewards that are here on this planet. When all that's going to be gone, it's all going to be done away with. And that's why Jesus himself said when he, when he preached that sermon, when he taught that sermon upon, that, upon the side of that mountain, that's not the place to store your treasure. Store it up in heaven. That's where the rewards are eternal. I'm reminded, just to close here, of a... Uh, of a quote that Randy Alcorn actually has in his book, Heaven, where he says in one phrase, 
live for the line and not for the dot. Uh, The dot on a continuum, on a line, the dot is our lives here on this planet. Very, very, very brief. It would be like me having a line stretched from this side of the auditorium all the way to that side and taking a pencil and putting a dot on that line. So many of us are living for that little dot on that line rather than living for the line. Realizing that I don't know how how long eternity is, but eternity is a very, very, very long time. We should live for the line and not for the dot. And I really believe that that is the greatest encouragement and the greatest challenge of studying eschatology. To know that one day we will spend eternity with Jesus. We will be here and we will be with him for all of eternity. It's a reason to live our lives for the line and not for 